hope you'd pray with me. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the promise we just heard, God, that your love never fails. And Lord, as we've looked at the things that have happened this past week, we started on Sunday night with the fires here and the fires in our Bay Area. Devastation, loss of life. We think back a couple of weeks ago with just this Las Vegas, we saw loss of life, saw evil rain. God, just to be honest with you, sometimes it's hard to look at that and then to sing songs that says that you make all things work together for our good. When we sing those words, it takes all the faith we have. It takes all the strength. But we do want to declare to you that that's, that's what we believe, God. You're the one on which we stand. We stand on you. As we sang earlier, we sang about your prayer, the Lord's prayer, and we sang about heaven coming to earth. I pray, God, that you would help us to learn to live in that reality. That it's not based on our circumstances. It's not based on what we see around us. But we can know you. And you can strengthen us. And you can give us hope in you, Jesus. So I pray now that as we look at these words that you spoke, Jesus, that you would use them to strengthen every one of us today. Just as you intended them when you spoke them to your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you can have a seat. That'd be awesome. And it's been pretty crazy around here. And I know for some of you, it has been for you as well, as you had um, both people staying in your home or you were evacuated yourself, or we have no people that have lost homes and uh, going through the tragedy of this week. And then we watch the news and um, you can't help but just crying as you see the loss and so as I was thinking about this, just going through my week, I was going, God, do you want me to do something different today? Do you want me to talk about something different? Would you guide me? And uh, I really, once I uh, dug into the plan for today, is that I saw that God had ordained the plan. And that's the way it is lots of times in our lives, folks, is that he gets a plan, he puts it into place, and he just will walk with us as we work it out. And that's exactly what happened as I dug into this I am statement of Jesus. And I really hope that you are strengthened as I was as I processed this this week. It's just been my prayer that each one of us would uh, be so glad we came today and that we would get encouragement from this. So I want to jump right in and just remind us what we've been talking about. We've been talking about these I am statements that Jesus made. So John recorded them. And there are seven of them. And in, throughout his gospel account, he recorded them so that we could have them, so that we could reflect on them, because they had so much meaning to him. Now, we know that we talked about this when he says, I am, that Jesus was making a statement just in that alone. And what he was doing is he was drawing the people to whom he was speaking to, and we know this so we could also be drawn to that same place, back to Exodus 34, in Exodus 34, when Moses asked God, Jehovah God Almighty, 
who will I say sent me? He said, I am. And so what he was saying in that is, is he was saying, I am who I am. And uh, what we've learned that that means is, is it means I will be all to you that you need. I'll be all for you that you need. And so that was such encouragement to Moses. So then Jesus comes along and he speaks these words and he uses, he says, I am, that he's saying to us, here's who I'll be for you. You can count on me in this way. And so we've looked at five of them today, five of the statements. Won't go back over them. If you weren't here, I just suggest that you might want to go back and spend some time listening to how we've exposed those and talked to them uh, about them, about these sayings. And today we look at one that is probably the most controversial, one of the most controversial things Jesus said. And that uh, some of you at some point in your life that uh, has caused the hair on the back of your neck to just kind of rise up a little bit, or that you've been embarrassed that Jesus said this in some way as you were trying to communicate this to your friends or your loved ones in some way. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And when he says that, he's making clear definitive statements about reality, about who he is, and then about the reality in which we can live when we embrace him in this way. So I'm just going to suggest right away that you grab your message notes out. They look like this. You can pull them out of your program. You may be able to take some notes today, follow along. All the Bible verses will be here, but really open your Bible to John 14. That's where I'm going to be in today the whole time, just right there in John 14. just want to encourage you, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. And so there's some shelves right out there, a bookshelf that has Bibles on it. You just take one as our gift to you. We were able to give several of these away this week. And so as we had people, we hosted in our church. And so I just want to encourage you, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. And you notice right at the top, I bolded this for us, Jesus' words as he begins in verse 1. He says this, don't let your heart be troubled. And I want to pause there. I just want to pause there. Now, Jesus said this for one reason. Why do you think Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled? Because their hearts were troubled. I mean, it's just obvious. Their hearts were very, very troubled at this place. They were confused about things that were happening. They gathered with him in the upper room uh, for this final Passover meal that he was going to have with them. It's recorded in John chapter 13. And so as he begins then, he begins this upper room discourse that is called that goes all the way through the end of chapter 17. So John records what happened in the upper room. He records the words. He records the actions of the people who were there. And Jesus was sharing with them of what was coming, what was coming in his departure, and then how he was going to take care of them as after he would leave, and that he, they could count on him no matter what happened. During this meal, Jesus, as we know, washed his disciples' feet. He bent low, and he showed that he was a servant leader. During this meal, Judas and Jesus had a conversation, and then Judas left never to return to the upper room. So there's tension there. Where did Jesus go? What's going on? And then they t- this, John describes a moment when all the disciples were told, all of them, that they would abandon Jesus. Can you imagine what they felt at this point? But Peter was the bold one and said he never would. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, guess what, Peter? You'll deny me three times before the night's over. You'll deny me. So the air was tense in this upper room as they realized that the events that Jesus had been talking about and they were starting to put pieces together and their understanding about his death was upon them. It was upon them. And they were disturbed and they were troubled. 
That word troubled, it means to be disturbed in every direction, from every and in every possible direction. It, it talks about being shaken up. Have you ever washed and dried in a tennis shoe in the dryer? You put a tennis shoe in the dryer and go, boom, 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 boom. That's what they were going through. They felt like the tennis shoe in the dryer, boom, 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 boom. They felt like everything was about to erupt, and they were overwhelmed in every way. They were troubled. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew how troubled they were. And his next words that he spoke to his disciples were designed for them to hear. But before we read these words, I just want us to think about our lives. What I want to do as we begin today is I want to ask you this question. What is it in your life that's troubling you? What is it in your life that's going on that you feel like a tennis shoe in a dryer? And you have no control, and you're being shaken up, and it's making a lot of noise, and you wonder what's going on. What is it that's creating anxiety in your soul? What is causing you worry? What are the circumstances that are going that are robbing you of peace? What is it that's stealing your joy? What is it that's hindering your hope? I just want you to think about that a minute. For some of you, it'll be easy for others of us, it may be a little harder to think about that. But I just want you to think of one thing. One thing you say, this is the thing that's troubling me today. I've talked to people in the lobby today, before service, between service, and I've heard lots of things that people are worried about. It's causing their soul to be troubled. But what's yours? I just want you to take a minute and just right at the top of your notes, I want you to write the one thing down. The one thing that you want to carry to Jesus today. The one thing that you're asking for hope in your life about. The one thing that you would say, Jesus, I would like to know what you have to say about this. And then what you don't want you to understand. I want you to understand this. That Jesus looks at you. See, some of us, when we have things that trouble us and we're not sure how we can get out from under it and we get all stressed about it, some of us, we feel shame about that. Oh, I should be able to conquer this. I should be able to do this. I should be able to do that and get out. But I seem to be under this for some reason. And here's what Jesus would say to you today. He would look at every, if he could just be, if he could have coffee with you, he could be across the table from you, that Jesus would look at every one of you today. And this is what he would say. He would say, don't let your heart be troubled. He'd say it with compassion and tenderness. Don't let your heart be troubled. And folks, I just want you to know, that's the context. That's the context for these, what some people say are very exclusionary words, divisive words. The context is, is that God has a plan for our peace of mind and heart. God has a plan that I would have joy that overflows. God has a plan that I would have a hope that abounds. And I just say, who doesn't want that, right? We all want to experience that. Then he helps them to see things from his perspective. Don't let your heart be troubled. And then he says these words that are so powerful. Trust in God and trust also in me. He said, here's the pathway to peace. Here's the pathway, pathway to hope. And then he goes on to say these words right after that. I want to read these, and we're going to talk about this. He says, there is more than enough rooms in my father's home. Would you underline that, circle that word home? If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare? Circle that, underline it. Prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you 
so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am. <laughs> no, we don't, Lord. Some said, Thomas said, we have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Know the way. This is amazing. Thomas, once again, he's always the one who gets the brunt of the doubting Thomas jokes, right? But here he was, questioning what was going on. And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus says these words that cause so much controversy. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, you got to know, when Jesus says this, he's not picking a fight. He's not picking a fight here. He's actually saying words of comfort. You will be comforted by these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what I want to do is I want to walk through these three phrases to help us to understand what it was that Jesus wanted us to know and understand so that our hearts would not be troubled. We would have hope. The first idea is this. Jesus comforts troubled hearts by paving the way home to God. By paving the way home to God. He paves the way to relationship with God. Jesus is saying, by the way, he's saying, I'm a road or I'm a highway to the Father's presence. And I'm laying down the asphalt. I'm laying down the pavement. And you'll walk on me. You will drive on me. You'll ride on me to the Father's presence so that there can be intimacy between you and the Father. That's why I had you underline that word home there. He's, dry, he's leading us to a home. And so many times in John, he uses the phrase Father, because it's all about intimacy. It's all about a family, and he's drawing us home. He's giving us a pathway that we can come home to God, and he says, I'm here to show you the way. Now, Jesus, when he says this, folks, you, got, you have to know, he is saying, I'm the only way. Just don't be confused about that. He's saying, I am the only way to the God of the Bible. I'm the only way. I'm the only way to know the Father. These words are so difficult in the age we live in, the age of pluralism and relativism. These words spoken by Jesus are for many people really hard to swallow because they have this apparent claim of exclusivity. To some, they seem arrogant. They seem closed-minded. How could Jesus say this? And how could you say this to me? But actually, when we think about it, if we look at it from perspective, these are the most inclusive words in the Bible that Jesus said. He said, I am the way. He's saying, I am the way for anyone, no matter who you are or what you've done. You can come through me. So we don't have to wonder. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to guess. If our lives, if we're you know, on the wrong way, we're going the wrong, doing the wrong thing, we don't have to wonder if this is actually going to work and it comes down to the end. He's making, giving us assurance that he is the way. Now, one of the reasons that these are oftentimes not heard as words of comfort is the way that they're delivered, okay? You think it out of the upper room context. How are these words most of the time delivered? You, Jesus is the way. <laughs> Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And if you don't turn to him, you're going to burn in hell. That's the way they're most often delivered. Would you receive that message very well? No. But Jesus delivered these. He didn't deliver these as words of confrontation. He delivered them words as consolation. This wasn't a weapon. This was a welcome. He's saying, these are words that I will use to draw you 
to myself, to draw you into a relationship with God. So just think about it. If you think that these are words of confrontation, if you've used these words of confrontation with people before, think about how Jesus might have used these words. He was with his closest friends and his followers. He knew he was going to leave them. He knew they were troubled. He knew they were feeling this anxiety. He knew that they were feeling worry about what was going to happen. He loved them, and he's looking at them. He's saying, I want you to know. I want you to understand. So I want you to be able to experience peace. I want you to I want to calm your troubled heart. So he says, place your trust in me. He says this with gentleness. He says this with empathy. Place your trust in me. I am the way, he's saying. I'm the way for you to know him. I'm the way for you to experience him. I'm the way for you to be comforted in your soul. And he's saying, I know life may look difficult. And for some of us, I would say life may look impossible. I know that things don't appear to be going your way. But you can trust me. I am paving the way for you to be able to have a relationship with the Father. I am the way home to God. Now, when Jesus said this, I am the way, his followers would have had a better idea than most of us would have about what the context Jesus was referring to. Because they had so much more familiarity with the Bible, especially with the Old Testament that we do. So when it says that Jesus is the way, their minds would go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 2, we have Adam and Eve. They rebelled and disobeyed God. They ate of the forbidden tree. And after they ate of the forbidden tree, everything began to spiral out of control in the Garden of Eden. Everything began to unravel that they had built their lives on it to that point. This beautiful, harmonious world that God had created, shalom, was suddenly fractured right before their eyes. And then God banished them from the garden. This is what it says. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden... And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the what? The way. Guard the way to the tree of life. You see, the way to the tree of life, God blocked. And ever since we've been thrown out of the Garden of Eden, we've been trying to get our way back there as human beings. Find our way back to the garden. And Jesus came to say in these words, I am the way back to the garden. I am the way back to perfect relationship with God. I am the way to being for you to come home. That's what the garden represented. It represented home. And it's through Jesus. And Jesus is the only way. Throughout the Bible, we're going to read several verses today that talk about Jesus being the only way. One is from Acts 4. Paul, Peter is preaching. And he says this. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. So what's my response? Follow him. If he paved the way to relationship with God, so I will follow him. I will follow him on the road he's paved to God. He's our guide. He knows the way. But really, he's laid the highway for me to be able to return to God. So I would just say, let God guide you home. Let God be the one. Follow him. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Read John 3, 17. He didn't come to tell us how bad we are. He came here to save us out of our brokenness, redeem us out of our sin and the need we have. He came to pave the way to God. Okay, that's the first idea. Second idea is this. Jesus comforts troubled hearts by defining ultimate 
universal truth. Is that enough? Divining ultimate universal truth, absolute truth. He defines it. See, when Jesus says he's the truth, what he's saying is, I'm a picture of reality. I'm a picture of reality. What he says is absolute, and what he says is undeniable. There's not much truth in our world, is there? We live in an age of Photoshopped images, don't we? Where anytime you look at a picture in today's world, you have no idea, was this the real deal? Is that really, really how that was? Because we edit our pictures because we want everything to look like we're actually heading back to the garden, right? Back to perfection. We want everything to look that way. We live in the age of fake news. Where every, you know, we, we read stuff and we're like going, is this real? Is this not real? Uh, was this paid for by someone who wants to influence me? Uh, was this, uh, did somebody make this happen in a way that they wanted to motivate me in a certain direction? You know what, folks? I just want, in this thing of fake news, why are we surprised about this? Why are we surprised about fake news? We live in a broken world. We live in a world that wants to influence us. And if we think that we can naively read everything that comes at us and it's true, we just need to get a little wiser. Wise as serpent, harmless as doves in this area. We live in an area where truth and reality are no longer givens upon which we stand. Truth is now determined by the personal views or the feelings of an individual or a group of individuals. We live in an age of relativism and tolerance that says all views are equally valid. There is no absolute truth in our world today because if I say that something is absolutely true, I'm saying to someone else, you're absolutely wrong. And heaven forbid I would offend anyone by saying that they're wrong. We live in an area where truth is especially, especially biblical truth is no longer tolerated or accepted. And folks, I just want to say today, there is only one reality, and it's God's reality. He created us, he made us, he designed us, and it's God who knows the best way for us to live. He's defined reality. He's put us here. So therefore, I would just say, let's stand on the absolute truth of God's word and what God says about him, about us, about Jesus, and about how to live. He guides us that way. He defines reality. Jesus says, I am the truth. So therefore, I can study Jesus, and I can learn the truth. I can study Jesus. I can learn how to live. I study Jesus. I learn how to love. Jesus is our picture of reality. Look at John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said to the people who circled this, underlined, believed him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So that statement about the truth is not talking about any truth here, folks. You just need to understand. He's talking about the truth about me. The truth about me will set you free when you embrace the truth about me. One of the books that I've been reading lately, several of us in our staff have been reading, is about reality. It's written by a man named Gregory Kokel. And he has this quote here I want to read to you. It's be on your screens if you want to follow along. It says this. The correct answer to the question, what is Christianity, is this. Christianity is a picture of reality. It is an account or a description or a depiction of the way things actually are. It is not just a belief from the inside. Uh, so this is the way that many people would say Christian belief is wrong. 
So they say, well, it's just, a, it's just your personal belief. So we can all have personal beliefs. It's not just a personal belief. It's not a religious belief. It's not a spiritual affection. So we just do this because it moves us in our souls. It's not just an ethical view. So Christianity is more than ethics. Or it's not just a relationship with God. All this inner stuff that we say that we would claim, uh, that people claim would be just what Christians believe. He says it's also a view of the outside. So this is outside of us. It's a view of the outside. It's a view of the world out there of how the world really is in itself. So God defines truth, and he defines reality, and he does it through Jesus. And Jesus defines reality by saying this, I'm the one who created the world, and the only way you're going to find it, life, is to follow me. And so that's our second idea. Is we need to, my response is I need to believe him. I need to believe him. That's what it said in John 8. It said there are those who believed him. So I, if I'm going to base my life on him, I have to believe that what he's saying is true and it's good for me. It's actually best for me. So what are, what are some of the things that might keep us from saying yes to Jesus? Well, I thought of one that I wanted to share and then a response, okay? So there's one way that might keep us from saying that, you know, following Jesus as the truth, and it's this. Here's the one way. We want freedom without restraints, we want, keyword is want, freedom without restraints. So we look at what we want and we say, that's what I deserve. And so therefore, no one can put restraints on me because this is the way I was made to get them, my needs met. And so we say, well, I want it without restraints. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We want to define our reality based upon what, how we feel or what we think. We want to be our own gods. That's what we think. But if you notice something, that oftentimes what we want isn't best. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, my word. This week was horrible for me in this way. Here's what was horrible about this. Is, you know, we, we, so we had our, our facility open to uh, help those who were evacuated in our neighborhood. And when I got word of this on Monday morning, I thought the first thing that people need when they come here is they need donuts. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the donut shop and bought several dozen donuts and brought them down. And I thought, that's what people need. You know, and they just sat there, and all of a sudden I realized this is what I want. And so I had the hardest time all week. The tables were covered with donuts, and it was just overwhelming to me because I knew what I wanted. Now, I just, is this what I needed? No, no, and you can tell I don't need that, but I did want, and I did imbibe in donuts all week. I didn't have any restraint at all. But, so what did I need? I needed this, and here's the second point is I needed this. I need freedom that comes with boundaries. We all need freedom that comes with boundaries. So it's great to be free, but God designed us to live within boundaries. Aren't you glad that the world functions according to principles and boundaries? Aren't you glad that when you get on the highway today and you drive, that there are white lines and that, that most of the time people stay in their lane? And that there are guardrails that are also in place so that if I actually go off, want to go off the road, I'll get shoved back onto the road by a guardrail. Guardrails, boundaries. See, the God's word, this book gives us the guardrails by which to live. It just puts them right there. And he says, here's how to live. Here's my truth about people. Here's my truth about sin, about relationships, about sexuality, about money, about success, about compassion, about caring for others, about business, about holiness, about redemption, about life. It's right here. And he says, believe me and live by the boundaries I've established. Okay, third idea is this. Jesus comforts troubled hearts by promising the gift of abundant life. 
abundant life. So he promises that there's going to be an abundant life, as we talked about last week. If you weren't here, you want to listen to this. Last week, we talked about this idea of resurrection and that we, because Jesus is resurrected, that the kingdom of God has come now and that we get to know the resurrected life here, but then we'll get to know the resurrected life forever in eternity. So we get to have abundant life here and in eternity with him. I couldn't fit this on your notes. Obviously, there's already full Bible verses, but here's one I didn't put on that I want to read. It's John 14, 19. You might write that reference down, John 14, 19. So Jesus is continuing his discourse with his disciples right now, and he says this, soon the world will no longer see me, but you, here's the promise, you will see me since I live, the promise, you will also live. You will have life, life not just in heaven forever with me but you will know true abundant life here because you're choosing to live within the boundaries that I've established for living life here. And so it's a, not just a promise that, because it's a promise that says, because I live, you will also experience this. And then they got to see that as Jesus was crucified and resurrected. They got to see what he meant by he's going to live and that they would be able to, uh, be able to um, embrace this themselves. Now, back when I, we read the verses on the front side of your notes, I had you underline the word prepare because I want to talk about that a minute. Jesus says, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? So when we read that verse, and um, you know this, this verse gives me a lot of hope as I read this, and oftentimes we read that verse, and so we read that verse to believe that Jesus is making me a personal home in heaven, that he's making a dwelling for me. Uh, King James says he's making a mansion for me in heaven. And so we use this verse a lot at funeral time because we talk to, about people now moving on to their eternal dwelling in their home. And, I, and there's, some, there's some truth to this. And, so, and there's even some hope in this, that, that that's what he's creating for us. But as comforting as this may be for us to talk about at funerals, there are other people who believe that when Jesus uses this word prepare right here, he's not really saying that he's going to be engaging in some heavenly construction project for eternity. He's not really saying that at all. He's not really building these eternal dwellings, even though that may be comforting for people when we're at the end of life and we're talking about those who have lost homes and fire, for example. It's more than likely that Jesus right now, because guess what's next for him? It's the cross. That when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a home for you, that he's saying, I'm going to go to the cross for you. And as I go to the cross for you, it's going to make it available for you to be able to be in heaven forever with God. It's not talking necessarily about an eternal construction project in heaven. It's talking about a crucifixion on earth. And that because I'm going to be crucified, then you can have hope. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. So the emphasis is not so much on the place or the thing, it's on the person. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You're going to be with me. And that's the most important thing about eternity with him. But he gives us expectancy beyond heaven. He gives us expectancy today, right now, on earth. He's promising us that because he lives, that he's with us no matter what we face. We get to know abundant life. We get to know intimacy with God now. Now, Jesus goes on in chapter 14, and he gets to a couple of verses I want to kind of wrap up with today in verses 27 and 28. And he says this, because he's talking about all this. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man may come to the Father except by me. 
He started with, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he comes to the section here where he comes back again and he says this, I'm leaving you with a gift. He's departing. Peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you. I am going away, but I will come back to you again. And that's the promise that he's given us of the resurrection. So I remember when my first wife, Darla, we were in a head-on accident, and she, was, she died in the accident. And I was getting to pastor a little church in the hills of Arizona. And uh, I remember that I'd been teaching in that little church from kind of walking through the book of 1 John. And I just finished a couple of weeks before that teaching on 1 John chapter 5. And I've even been able to go back and look in her journal where she journaled on experience that God spoke to her through those verses. And so... Um, in my difficult times of, that I was experiencing there after she died, where I was experiencing the loss and my soul was deeply troubled, I had the promise of this, these, actually these two verses to hold on to. Look at what it says. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. So I knew that she had eternal life. When I got to Nebraska, where she was buried, she'd only been dead a few days, and I went to the funeral home to make the arrangements for her funeral. And they started talking to me about a tombstone, and they asked me, well, what would you like to be on the tombstone? And uh, I was like, I don't know. I'm just 31. I've just been married six years. Why would I ever think about what I wanted on my wife's tombstone if she were to die? And God brought this to mind. So I was sitting right in that funeral home, just me and the funeral director. And he brought this last piece to mind, and I said, this is what I want on her tombstone. And this is what we put on her tombstone. It says this, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. And that became her story, her legacy forever. Those words, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. And this has given me so much courage. This helped me when my soul was the most troubled. To know that I could tr place my trust in the promises of God as he gave them through Jesus. That Jesus is the only way. I want to go back and read his words again. It says, that's what Jesus was saying when he said, no one can come to the Father except through me. If you'd really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So the claim is not exclusive, folks. The claim is inclusive. It's open to anyone. It requires belief. It requires belief when I say yes to him. And then how do I live without trouble? Well, here's the last fill-in that you want to have there. My response is I have to trust him. So I have to trust him with all I am. I have to trust him with all I have. I've placed my trust in him as the way, the truth, and the life. 
and I'm going to build my life on him. And so when we sing songs like we sang this morning and we're claiming Romans 8:28 as our promise that he's going to work all things together for the good for those who love him, I can trust that that's true. Even though I don't understand how or can't even see the way at the time. So what I want to do is I want to end. Uh, when I became a new follower of Jesus at 25, someone recommended I read a book by Thomas Akempis. It's called Invitation of Christ. And just know this is not first early Christian reading. I was like, oh, my word. But there was a section, and, and it's been used, and it's been published several times, that I want to read to you as a closing. It's a paraphrase of the verses we've read today. And I wanted to ask if you would, just like I know we've been doing lately, is if you can just put your hands on your legs right now, just on your lap, and oh, palms up. And that's a position of receiving or maybe even surrender for some of you. And I'm just going to read these as our prayer today, and I'll follow it with a prayer. Jesus said, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the unending life. I am the way that is straight, the supreme truth, the life that is true, the life that is blessed, the life that is spiritual. If you abide in my way, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, and you shall attain life everlasting. Jesus, I thank you so much for your words. Lord, I know that in the day in which we live, and the place in which we live, and the time in which we live, that there are many reasons to have troubled hearts. And that I know that you, as our good shepherd, you as our compassionate father, I know that you want to speak into the anxiety we carry, the worry that we have, for some people even hopelessness. And that what you want to say today is you want to say to each one of us, you want to say, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So God, we, wanna, we just want to pray today. We want to walk through you, Jesus. We want to get on the highway you've paved. And we want to walk within the boundaries you've laid. And we want to then embrace the abundant life that you've called us to live. Help us to have that vision of reality. Help us to surrender to you and what you're doing in our world, what you're doing in our lives, that we could know you better, that we could have intimacy with you as we find our way home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.